Don't forget about the baby bottle campaign for Ozar House for the fundraiser. In conjunction with that, we're going to take a minute and let's watch together a short video that was put together for Ozar House, and then I'll come back and finish up our announcements. Created in the image of the Creator, a promise, a masterpiece, a life. On January 22, 1973, a decision was made in our nation to legalize abortion at any stage for any reason. Forty-nine years later, that decision was finally reversed. Forty-nine years of prayer and perseverance. 49 years of being a voice for the unborn, proclaiming their humanity and their possibility. 49 years of striving to reach their moms and dads, proclaiming there's hope and a future. 49 years of waiting for life to be upheld in our nation. And here we are. This January is the first post-Roe in our nation. Roe versus Wade, as we know it, is no longer. As we grieve that loss of over 60 million lives and the devastating cost to their moms and dads, we give thanks for the lives that will be saved and protected from this date forward. Because of this decision, already thousands of moms have chosen life. The lives of thousands of children have been saved. They will celebrate a first birthday. They will experience their first day of kindergarten, their first best friend, their first home run, their first dance, their high school graduation, and so many things beyond. We celebrate this victory, and yet know there is much more to be done. There are still unexpected pregnancies. It is still a crisis. They still need hope and help. Our services are needed now more than ever. You can make a difference for life. You can pray. You can give. You can serve. Will you? thank the Lord for the outreach of Azar House and um, don't forget about the baby bottles that are in the foyer and uh, let's dig deep to give to that tremendous ministry and outreach here in our community. Before we go to prayer, let's do our catechism today. We're looking at the seventh commandment. We've got three um, commi- uh, catechisms that we'll do, uh, all related to the seventh commandment and uh, this one, of course, um, this commandment is just being tromped on in our culture, just done away with. The implications of it are so uh, painful and leave so many scars when it is disregarded. And so we need to think about what God is telling us in this command. He says in question 70, which is the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment is, thou shalt not commit adultery. What is required by the Seventh Commandment? The Seventh Commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity 
in heart, speech, and behavior. What is forbidden in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment forbids all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we pray that you would forgive us a nation for the way that we have disregarded your law. Lord, we know that your law was not given to us as a means of salvation. It reveals to us our sin. Lord, when we read this commandment and we think about its implications, and we think about how our entire society is just immersed in things that tend to unchastity, that destroy purity, that destroy relationships, and then many times end in discarded lives, as we saw in the video. We ask that you would forgive us. I pray that you would help us, your people, to understand the importance of this commandment, to guard our lives, to guard our hearts, to set boundaries in our lives, that we might obey what you have told us in your word. Uh, Father, help us as we carry with us these devices everywhere we go that just are saturated with pornography and lewd images and temptation on every hand. Father, help us to set some boundaries. Help us to be bold. Help us to be wise. Lord, help us to understand that this commandment and breaking it leaves so many scars. We thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ that redeems us. Lord, I pray that if there's someone in here today that is just struggling in this regard, that your Holy Spirit would minister to that person today, would point them to the cross, would point them to forgiveness, would bring them to healing and to washing in the blood of Christ. I pray that, Lord, you would help us as your church, that we would extend to the broken people around us your grace and mercy, that people would see that in us at work. Thank you for this day that we can come and worship you. It is the time to worship. We thank you for this time, and we pray that we would be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we're going to be in verse 35 to 42. We are seeing unfold in front of us a quick succession of events over just the span of days in which John reveals to his disciples who the Messiah is. There is now in the text that we study today the transition beginning to happen where disciples of John, those hearts and those minds and those lives that John has been pouring his life into, uh, those lives that John has been preparing for the coming of the Messiah, now all of a sudden they are going to begin following the Messiah. And we will go from seeing John the Baptist, not John the Apostle so much, as figuring prominently in this chapter, to now all of a sudden switching into the narrative where we just see the ministry of our Lord. And it tells us here in verse 35, it says the next day. The next day again, John, 
was standing, and he's standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus as he was walking by. He says to the two, Behold the Lamb of God. Very close to what he said last week when we studied earlier when he says that to the entire crowd. There he says, Behold the Lamb of God. That takes away the sin of the world. These men have undoubtedly heard that entire expression. Here it is simply... Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this. And they began to follow Jesus. Jesus turned. He saw them following him. He said to them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. I'm sure that was not a Ramada. I'm sure it wasn't even a Hotel Six. Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. They come and they see. They see where he was staying and they stayed with him the remainder of that day for it is about the 10th hour. Now the 10th hour figuring it with the Jewish means of telling time, would be regarded from the 6 a.m. hour, 12 hours of daylight in the Jewish reckoning. From 6 a.m., the 10th hour, do your math, would be 4 in the afternoon. It's about the 4 in the afternoon. It's the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and began to follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. The first thing he did was he found his own brother, Simon. He said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him. He said, you are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, I pray that today you would help us to behold your son, the Lamb of God, who came, who took the fall. Who took the entire fall of all humanity? When Adam and Eve sinned and fell. But Lord, you not only took the fall of all humanity, you took my fall. You took the fall for each one of us that's here today. You are our Lamb. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Lord, help us to be instructed this morning as we see you beginning this work of gathering to yourself a band of men, a band of brothers, who you would use by your Spirit to transform the world. Help us to be instructed today. 
Lord Jesus, you truly are above all. We thank you that you are seated at the right hand of the Father from henceforth waiting in expectation until your enemies are made a footstool for your feet. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. So here we see the third witness that John makes concerning Jesus. The first one was to the hostile Pharisees who have come from Jerusalem. They have been sent by the priests. It's kind of a turf war. What are you doing? Who do you think you are? Why are you baptizing? All those things that we already studied. The last one we studied last week was when John is recognized who Jesus is. God had prepared him in advance for that moment when he would baptize him. He would see the Spirit descending like a dove upon him and resting upon him. And now John has announced to the crowd, Behold, the Lamb of God, He takes away the sin of the world. And then in this third one, we begin to see this transition. We see in this paragraph and the next paragraph, which begins in verse 43, that again in a quick succession of events, there is the next day, the setting up of the stage of Jesus gathering these disciples to Himself. And then we will see him going with these disciples to a wedding in Cana of Galilee in chapter 2. It's important we take a minute and harmonize some events. When Dave read to us this morning Matthew chapter 4, we noticed Jesus calling Peter and Andrew and James and John. They're fishing there at the Sea of Galilee. They were doing their occupation. They're mending their nets, and Jesus is coming by, and he says to them, follow me, follow me, and I will make you, you know it, fishers of men. I will make you, remember that song, fishers of men? That dates me, it goes back to my Sunday school days. If you follow me, right, follow me, and I will make you to be a fisher of men. This text, we don't see these guys fishing. We don't see any nets. We don't see any of that going on. So what's happening here? Undoubtedly, what has happened is this. Remember, John's ministry ranges all along the Jordan Rift. And he has traveled all the way up and down the Jordan Rift preaching a message of repentance. He has centered his preaching ministry along the river in locations where he can baptize. There are people coming to him from all across Galilee and Judea, probably not so much Samaria. But they have heard his message and they've been prepared. He is a voice preparing the way for the Lord. Some fishermen have come to hear John. And hearing John, their hearts have been pricked. They have repented and been baptized, and they are looking for Christ. And John introduces them. In this introduction, we see very clearly as we go into this text that Andrew understands who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He goes and finds his brother Simon. We have found the Messiah. 
Come and see him. Peter comes and is introduced to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, you're Cephas. You're a rock. They must have followed with Jesus for several days because it tells us in John chapter 2 that they are at, the disciples are at the wedding in Cana of Galilee where Jesus has been invited. But then in this foundational stage of Jesus' ministry, these men are not tracking with him every day all the time. And so they go back to their occupation. They go back to fishing. Probably within days, maybe within weeks, we don't know the exact time period, Jesus seeks them out. And he comes to the Sea of Galilee and he says to them, follow me. Follow me. Keep on following me. That's the tense of that verb. Not just follow me today, but keep on following me. And I'm going to transform you and I'm going to make you to be a fisher of men. And from that moment on, they leave their other occupation and they completely devote themselves to following the itinerant ministry of Jesus and tracking with him. That's kind of how this seems to unfold. Let's look at the text for a minute. Let's think about some things that we see here. Um, in, In this text itself, we first of all see John's exclamation. He says, behold, behold the Lamb of God. And we talked about that last week. We'll come back to it in a minute. But here again, we see an exclamation by John. He points his disciples to Jesus And he doesn't just say, look, there's Jesus. He says, look, there's the Lamb of God. And that phrase is full of implication for us today. When we consider our own life and our own need, the disciples' response is when they behold Jesus, they begin to follow him. They're like shadowing him. Have you ever had somebody shadow you? You know somebody's behind you because you feel the hair standing up on your neck. It's like, who's behind me? It's like Jesus walking down the road, and he turns and he sees two men following him. And so we see these disciples begin to follow him, and Jesus asks them a question. What are you looking for? I mean, he puts it right at him. What are you looking for? No, he doesn't say, who are you looking for? I think that's instructive. I think that's interesting. What are you looking for? We'll come back to that later in the message. What are you looking for? What are you here for? What are you looking for? The disciples reply, where are you staying? Now, that's an interesting reply. I think if I were to reply, I'd say, well, John said, you were the Lamb of God, and I was just curious about that. I'd like to talk to you. Can we have a cup of coffee? Why did they say, where are you staying? That's an interesting reply, isn't it? Where are you staying? The implication, of course, would be what? We'd like to come stay where you are. We want to get to know you. And so there's a question thrown back at Jesus that is stating in the question their intention. Where are you staying? Jesus' invitation is, come and see. Come and see. He doesn't command them. He invites them. He invites you. 
are you looking for? Come. Come now, it's time to worship. Come. Come and see. Then we see Andrew's immediate impulse. Now, they meet Jesus at about four in the afternoon. They probably had dinner together. They probably are sitting over a campfire. And they're talking. Whatever happens in that conversation convinces Andrew of a truth. We don't know anything that is said. But whatever is said, Andrew comes away from that conversation convinced. And what is he convinced of? We have found the Messiah. His immediate impulse is to go and find who? His brother. He finds Simon. Jesus makes a statement to Peter when he meets him. There again, can you imagine? Your brother comes and tells you, we found the Messiah. We found him. And you walk up to him, and as soon as you walk up to him, he looks at you and says, I'm going to change your name. You are Cephas. I, I just guarantee you, Jesus is not like any person you've ever met. Is he? I mean, it is amazing to me. We read these stories and we read these interactions just like you and me, people interacting. I mean, you think about how you interact with people. Jesus is just like, blow your brain, surprise you with the kind of things he says. I'm going to change your name. You're Cephas. Now, that not only shows he knows some things about Peter, it also shows us he knows some things about the future, about what Peter will do. Because Peter is not going to just by chance talk to Jesus, go back to fishing, and then just like forget it all. No, Jesus knows this introduction to this individual is so transformational of that man that from here on out, he is Peter. And Jesus knew it. That tells us something about Jesus. And we see later in this book that he didn't need anybody to tell him about what was in someone's heart because he knew. So when he met people, he knew if they were not believing. He met people, he knew if they were distracted. He met people, he knew what was going on. He couldn't, you couldn't fool him. And so a Samaritan woman walks up to him and he's like... Uh, talking to him about the well, and then all of a sudden, Jesus is like, well, go get your husband. Uh, can we change the subject? <laughs> How did you know? You know, he knows us. He knows the struggles you're facing. He knows the turmoil in your life. He knows the sin you're struggling with. It makes no sense to try to hide it. Yeah. He knows. 
Now, let's just consider some things of note in the text. The first thing is John's exclamation. Earlier in this chapter, John said, Behold the Lamb of God, he takes away the sin of the world. He also says there of him, This is the one, I baptize you with water. But the one who is coming after me, he will baptize you with the Spirit. So in this exclamation, John has been teaching his disciples various things about who Jesus is and what he's doing and what he's going to do. The first thing is this. He is our sin bearer. He is the Lamb of God that takes away our sin. We looked at this last week. It told us in Hebrews chapter 10 that the sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament could never, never take away sin. They all pointed to Christ. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes it away. He takes it away by bearing it. When a lamb was brought to the temple, somewhere within its first year of life. It wasn't just born, okay? It wasn't like a lamb that was just born, but it's in its first year of life. Lambs are precious animals. I've been there and seen them born. I've helped to birth them. And you bring them into this world, they're like no, I mean literally hardly any bigger than a human baby. Just these tiny little fur balls. And they're precious little animals. And they would take this lamb in its first year of life in relationship to a sin that they had committed or in relationship to the bigger picture of the festivities of Judaism. And in the ceremony of sacrifice the person would lay their hands upon that lamb. Picturing a transferal of sin. And a priest would take a knife and slice its throat. In the Passover, they would take it and they would catch it in a basin. Remember that? And they applied it to the door, the doorposts, and the lintel. And anyone who was within the house where the blood had been applied was safe. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. This innocent lamb done no one any wrong. And I'm the one who sinned. And I am transferring my guilt to that animal and its life is taken for me. He is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Think of your sin. Think of its ugliness. Think about the times that you just knew better or you were living a time of rebellion in your life. 
And Jesus knew all of that and was willing to bear it. He is also the spirit baptizer. This is John's exclamation. We see two Andrews. There are two Andrews. Two disciples. One of them is Andrew. Not two Andrews. One is Andrew. He's the great guy to be, let me introduce you to Jesus. It's interesting. Andrew does not figure prominently into all of the Gospels. He actually is not in the inner circle. In the inner circle of the disciples, there is Peter, and there is James, and there is John. They go with Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They see all these great things. When Jesus is going to do something where he reveals something very intimate about himself, he calls to himself Peter and James and John, but not Andrew. And Andrew's the first guy. I wonder if that ever cut him. I'm serious. Well, Jesus, you met me first. Why did you let my brother go with you up on the Mount of Transfiguration and not me? Now, he obviously was probably in on the argument about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. But nevertheless, you don't see Andrew figuring prominently in the story of the Gospels. But you know what you see? Whenever you see Andrew, you know what you see him doing? Telling somebody about Jesus. Every time. So Andrew here tells Simon, we have found the Messiah. A little bit later in this book, in chapter 6, Jesus says to the disciples, I want you to feed this crowd. Hey, ladies, have you ever had your husband come home or talk to you in the foyer after church? and say, I just invited so-and-so with ten kids for dinner. (laughs) And you're like, what? What were you thinking? Are you going to take us to McDonald's? You know, what are we going to do? We don't have any food at home. I guess I'll go home and I'll find some peanut butter and, you know, jelly and slap it on bread. And there's a little bit of a, like, ooh, moment for us guys when we do those kind of things to our wives. But Jesus says to the disciples, feed the crowd. There's 20,000 people. What do you think? What does Andrew do? He has the faith to go find a boy who has a little lunch and bring him to Jesus. And from that lunch, Jesus feeds the crowd. Later, in chapter 12, some Greeks want to meet Jesus. They come to Andrew. They say, Sir, we want to see Jesus. And Andrew takes him. This man is all through the Scripture a model to us of the importance of introducing people to Jesus. The next one is unnamed. You'll notice this. It says right in the text, one of them is Andrew. The other one we don't know. But most people believe that this unnamed disciple is none other than the writer of the gospel, John himself. The reason for that belief is because of the eyewitness account and specific details. 
So it would seem that John, just out of humility of the moment, doesn't name himself. He doesn't say, Andrew and me met Jesus. He just doesn't name who it is. But he says this. It was four in the afternoon. That is interesting. John remembered the very hour he met the Lord. Do you remember that? Now, maybe you knew about Jesus all your life. Maybe you'd gone to Sunday school all your life. Maybe you'd read the Gospels. Maybe you sang the songs. Maybe you knew everything about it, but then all of a sudden, something happens in your life. And the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. The Holy Spirit is killing you in your heart. And you know your sin. And you know your devastation. And then all of a sudden, you meet Jesus. You didn't just read about him. You met him. If you have, you remember that time. It was about four in the afternoon. Some other things we note in the text. There's a title switch. When they first meet Jesus, they say, Rabbi, Rabbi, can we follow you? Can we see where you are staying? The word rabbi, I guess a loose translation of that would be a master, a teacher. It was somebody who was well-versed in the Torah and um, now today Talmudic writings. And so the Jewish rabbis are these men who devote their lives to the study of the Scriptures, to the Torah, and then they teach it. Most of them are not, most of them are bivocational. Nevertheless, they devote their lives to the ministry of the Torah and they teach. They do many of the same things that pastors do in Christianity, so they don't necessarily perform male circumcisions, but they're there. They're there for bar mitzvahs. They're there and do weddings. They do all the different functions within the synagogue of the Jewish community that many times a pastor would do today. In that day, they were a teacher. They were many times associated with a synagogue, and they had most times had the credentials of rabbi given to them by another rabbi. And so it was almost like an ordination process. They say rabbi. But after one evening over coffee, they say Messiah. Messiah. We have found the Christ. Now, it's interesting to note. Just notice with me. In here, we have, we have found the Messiah. That is down, where is it? Verse 41, which means Christ. And then down in verse 42, he says, You are Simon, the son of Jonah, or John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is interesting to note. Jesus and these fishermen, although they're blue-collar guys, carpenters, fishermen, very tied to the land, they're very agrarian society, these are not like dumbbells. They are well-learned men. The Jews of Jesus' day in Palestine were conversant in three languages. 
Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. I can kind of speak English on most days and read it. I can kind of say hola and um, things like hablo espanol or whatever the different thing. You know, I can kind of say a few dumb words so I don't look like a total misfit when I talk to a Spanish brother. But I by no means am conversant. And I can kind of do Greek for dummies. But I am not conversant. Jesus and his followers were conversant in Aramaic and Hebrew and Greek. Greek is the trade language coming to the culture through Rome, also through the Greek occupation, going back to the times of the Maccabees. Aramaic comes into the culture through the Babylonian captivity and also through that time period had become a cultural language. And then Hebrew is the religious language of the people. The Torah is written in it, although they have the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation. These men are conversant in three languages. And so when he says Messiah and Christ, Messiah is Aramaic, Christ is Greek. He is the Messiah, he is the Christ. Different languages meaning the same thing. He is the anointed one who was promised by God. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. We get down to Cephas. Cephas is Aramaic, meaning the same thing as Peter in the Greek. So Peter in the Greek and Cephas in Aramaic means a what? Stone or a rock. So there's a title switch here. Now let's go on. There's an interaction, invitation. That, you know, these are funny-sounding questions to us, but they are pregnant with meaning to them. Where are you staying? Where are you staying? Pregnant with meaning. Can we come be around you? Can we come get to know you? Can we come into your life? Not just can we have a conversation in the foyer. Can I come into your life? Where you stay? We see the new name. We see Cephas and Peter. Now, there's a major application, and then we're going to end with a final application, and we'll be done. Major application has to do with discipleship and following. And I want to just think about what is discipleship, what is it not, and how does that work out in the church? We hear a lot about discipleship, don't we? It's interesting. The word to be a disciple is only used in the Scripture in the Gospels and Acts. Once you get out of Acts, you never see it again. That's interesting. I don't, it's just not there. I looked in my Greek concordance this week. It ain't there. It is in the Gospels, it's in Acts, and it's used all the time in those books. And then once you get into the epistles, it shifts and it refers to us as believers. So I have to believe that when we're talking about being a disciple, we're talking about someone who is a believer. 
What does that mean? What does it mean to be a disciple? And how does this work out? Let's think about some things about what discipleship is and what it isn't. There's an interrelationship between two words in this text. There are disciples, and what do disciples do? They follow. Disciples, that's a noun, telling us who they are, they are disciples. The word disciple means to learn, to be a learner. What do disciples do? They follow. They followed him. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Disciples follow. Now let's think about, first of all, the word disciple means to be a learner. Maybe in our culture, we could think of it as an apprenticeship relationship. These are still common today, but probably not as much as they were maybe a hundred years ago, when a father would apprentice his son to someone else, and they would learn a trade. It could be a blue-collar trade, but it could also have been a white-collar trade. It could be like, I want my son to be an attorney. I want my son to be a doctor. And so I'm going to attach him to this master... And he will learn from him. And he will become that. And so it's kind of an apprenticeship relationship. As I said, it's used exclusively in Gospels and Acts. There are two terms, disciple, which is a noun, follow, which is the verb. What is discipleship? What is it? Well, it's to follow. But what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, let's think about, first of all, some things it isn't. First thing it isn't is this. It is not a class at church. Okay? It is not a class. It's not a program. Now, you know, sometimes you hear, well, we have this discipleship class. No, you don't. You have a maybe class in Bible doctrine or a class in Bible living, but it's not discipleship. Now, the two are interrelated because hopefully you get to know that teacher but it's much bigger than just the, tram, uh, the transmission of knowledge. Someone can get all the knowledge in the world and have it you know, bouncing around in their head. You ever met that person? They know everything about everything. But they don't know how to open the door. You know, they don't know how to live. Discipleship is much bigger than the transmission of knowledge. Discipleship is the transmission of knowledge that impacts life. It is skill in living. It is skill in living. It is taking the truth of the gospel, using it as a foundation for the life, and then having skill in doing it. So, if you want to be a parent, and you want to know how to parent, don't just buy a book. Buy the book, but find someone who is a successful parent, who has been a successful parent, and follow them, and get to know them. You want to have a successful marriage. What does a successful marriage look like? How do I have a successful marriage? You know, don't just buy the book. Buy the book. But build a relationship. Because it is in the relationship that we learn skill in living. Essentially, 
Discipleship is multi-layered. So we have things it is and some, some things it's not. But discipleship is multi-layered. There is an informational aspect to it. As a Christian, I need to know the truth. I need to know doctrine. That is vital. Vody Bauckham, you know Vody Bauckham is? He says it this way. Discipleship is knowing what a believer believes and how a believer lives. It's two things. You need to know the truth of God's Word because it is the foundation. But then that truth impacts things. It changes the way you live. So there's an informational aspect, but there's a relational aspect, and the goal is transformation. There are generational aspects of it in Scripture. All these things play into it. It is all about life skill. Discipleship, here's my definition. Discipleship is the long-term interaction of leaders with followers that results in transformation of life and learning. The ultimate illustration of it is this. Hello, I heard my name. Somebody said Papa back there. (laughs) Somebody's telling me to shut up and quit. Papa, I'm ready to be done. My grandkids get my attention. Man, I could be anywhere, and there'd be a lot of noise in the room, and I can hear that. Sorry. had nothing to do with anything. Where was I? Here's the ultimate illustration. This is what discipleship looks like. Parenting. In parenting, there is the transmission of knowledge, but there is also the transmission of life skill through example. And here's the beauty of it. This is why parenting is so important in our illustration. When you parent, you cannot fake it with your kids. Amen? They know. You can go to church and you can teach small group and you can say all this stuff and then you come home and you step in cat poop in the hallway when you get up in the morning because the cat did it. And you lose it. And you take the cat and you wring its neck and you throw it at the wall. (laughs) What just happened? Everything you said went where? Down the toilet. Why? Because you cannot fake it. Because Christianity is not just about what I say. It's Paul saying to his followers, the followers of Jesus, follow me. Because I follow Christ. And Paul feeling safe saying that. Boy, that's a big deal. You can't fake it with your kids. You know when I saw this? It's interesting. A long time ago, we invited a young man who was going through a lot of struggles in his life to come live with us. And he came and lived with us for a couple of years. And through that, God transformed his life by his grace. Now that young man lives in another state, is married, has... More kids than you can shake a stick at. Has a successful business and serving the Lord in the church. He called me the other night. We were talking about some issues in their church. 
And some of the struggles that are going on, he's involved there and he's, he's in leadership and a lot of things going on. He just told me, he said, man, I remember when I saw you And the example, thankfully, that I had set at that moment transformed his ability to respond rightly in what he was dealing with. Scary thing to bring somebody home from church and say, come live with me. Because you can't fake it with them either. These are people who live with Jesus. I am thankful that we have cameras back there that zoom our services out there into the big internet. And I'm thankful people join us. But it's not enough. It's not enough for you. It's not even enough for you just to come here Sunday morning and think that's good enough. If you are not developing deep, abiding relationships with people in which you are discipled and you are discipling, you missed it all. You need that. So do I. Every believer needs two types of relationships going on all the time. One is somebody who is giving into them and somebody that they are giving into. I am investing in certain individuals, but certain people are investing in me. So there are, I mean, there are guys that I turn to regularly, some guys in the ministry that I love that are like my rocks, and when I have a question or I'm struggling with something, these are guys I get on the phone, or we go to coffee, we meet in Cokeville, and we have lunch. Because I need them. There are a couple other great men in our, from this ministry here that I meet with routinely for coffee. I met with one of them this week, and we were talking. He was just sharing with me how over Christmas they were gone, and he got COVID, and he was in the hospital, and oh, he was, it was bad. And he told me, in that time, I went to God and said, God, I want to do this your way, whatever you got. I give myself to you. And his words to me ministered to me. And then I have, so people that are given into me and I'm giving into others, my friend, you need both of those relationships where you are getting and you are giving. You need the church. The church is messy. The church is difficult. Just like home and family. But we need it. You will impoverish your soul if you get disillusioned with other Christians, which there's plenty to be disillusioned about all of us, right? There's plenty. But if you get disillusioned and you quit church because you just think, eh, I'm done with this stuff. I'm just going to listen to Charles Stanley on the radio or Chuck Swindoll or whoever it is, and I'm just going to have my own walk with God. You missed it. It's in the messiness of life in the church that we grow. The closing application is this. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? Jesus asked him, what are you looking for? Maybe it's meaning in life. 
Maybe it's relief from guilt. Maybe it's healing. Maybe it's good marriage. Maybe it's friends. What are you, what are you looking for? You know what? Jesus takes whatever our starting point is. Whatever it is you're looking for, Jesus will start there. But he's not going to just give you that. He will give you himself. I don't think these guys got a clue what they're getting into. Come follow me. Oh, yeah. A few weeks later, take up your cross. Take up your cross and follow me. A few weeks later, if any man would follow me, let him sell everything he has. Follow me. They don't got a clue what they're getting into. But Jesus is okay with that. What are you looking for? I don't care what mess it is in your life that's going on today that Jesus is like, I just, I need something new. Jesus will start there. But he won't end there. He's going to mess with you. So just get ready. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are the Lamb of God who comes to take away our sin. I thank you that you have borne my sin. I, I could not bear it myself. Thank you. Lord, I want to follow you. I want you to make me a fisher of men. I want to be like Andrew. Lord, I know there are many people in this place that have that same desire. We're looking for you. We're reaching for you. Reveal yourself to us, we pray. In Jesus' name.